Welcome, everyone, to episode 36 of the Fire Nuggets podcast. We are really psyched to get to talk to our guest today. We want to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, Vanguard Safety Wear First. Uh, we really appreciate them giving us the opportunity to talk to our great guests. Be sure to check them out for all your glove apparel needs. So today is President's Day, uh, February 20th, 2023, and we get a chance to talk with our great guest, Chief Frank Lieb of FDNY. And as always, the goals here are pretty simple, bringing great guests and try to mine as much gold as possible. Jeff Bryan and myself, Nick, will be on the turntables today. So first of all, thank you for coming in to, to the show today, Chief. Hey, guys. Thanks a lot for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, uh, very excited to do this one, Chief. Um, so let's let's start off right away. Uh, you, you've been a member of the FDNY for over 30 years. Can you kind of walk us through your uh, your start to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So um, I joined in uh, joined the FDNY in 1992 um, at a proby school. Proby school at the time was only eight weeks uh, long, as opposed to um, anywhere between 16 and 18 weeks that it is uh, today. And um, after Proby School, I was assigned to Engine 323. Um, did a little over five years there. Uh, I'm a charter member of Squad 270 uh, there in South Queens. I went there when they first opened in 1998. Uh, from there, I got promoted to lieutenant and uh, was assigned to 324 Engine uh, in Queens. They're in quarters with a satellite. So the satellite unit goes on all second alarms or when they have a water issue uh, on a first alarm. From there, I promoted and, and uh, wound up working in Manhattan. I was assigned to 76 engine. Then as battalion chief, I came back to Queens, went to battalion 46, not far from the quarters of 324. And then from there, I went to division one as a deputy chief. From a, uh, after doing a short stint as a deputy chief, I was assigned to uh, the fire academy as the chief of the fire academy, then to the acting chief of training, and now my current position as the chief of safety. That's incredibly well-rounded. Uh, you've kind of been at every level uh, up to current chief of safety right now. So that's pretty damn impressive. Um, in, in addition to doing all that, you also got your master's degree in security studies from the Naval Postgraduate School, uh, the Center for Homeland Defense and Security. Can you tell us a little bit about that program and what you uh, gained from that? Yeah, sure. That's an, ex that's an exceptional program. They have, a, they have three different really good programs. An emergence program for people who are new in the organization. Then they have the executive leadership program, which is executives that are at a really high level um, already. And they don't um, preload you or try to preload you with a lot of different management styles and, and let you um, give you a wide breadth of, of topics related to homeland security. And then their master's program, uh, which is the one that I took, which is just an exceptional program. You leave that program thinking and acting differently than you did uh, before you went there. So I certainly encourage uh, any of your um, your listeners and, and you guys to look into that program because it's an exceptional program. And uh, as long as you have the support from your organization, uh, it doesn't it doesn't cost you anything out of pocket. It costs you a lot of time, but um, the investment in time in yourself and for your organization in in you um, is well worth it. The majority of the current FDNY staff, are graduates of that program. We have more than 40 graduates of that program in the FDNY currently. So you can see its value just by looking at the leadership levels in the FDNY. And where is that program located? Like brick and mortar, where is that located? And then can people take that 
those courses or go there like virtually or how does that work? Yeah, so they do have some virtual classes, but you can't take the entire master's program virtually. So the brick and mortar location is in Monterey, California, which is a beautiful part of the country. They also have um, they also have a different uh, another facility that's on the East Coast. I believe that's uh, in West Virginia or near DC. They were moving it or building a new facility last I knew. But the uh, I highly recommend the Monterey, California one, which is where I went, which is eight trips out there for two weeks at a time for your in residence, and then the rest of the time is doing the work online, uh, which is a very robust program online where you you know you're communicating with your instructors and with all of your the cohort, the people that you go to class with, which is um, 30 different people from around the country in different disciplines. And the relationship building that you build from with within your cohort and the larger um, CHDS program at the Naval Postgraduate School, the alumni of people that have gone there, you can send an email to someone that, that, that and say, hey, I'm an alumni of the program. And you will always get uh, you will always get a reply. So that has been uh, one of the, certainly the long lasting impacts of of the education is that I could reach out to somebody that I know is a, uh, went to the program and they may have had an incident and I could reach out and, and pick their brain on it uh, in real time almost days later. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for that information, Chief. Uh, Next, uh, you, you also worked along with the FSRI technical panel for the coordinated uh, attack study. You kind of give us what your what your thoughts are on uh, on working along with them on that project. Yeah, so it was really it was great to be a part of the coordinated attack panel for so many different reasons. Um, one to help guide the research um, based on questions that uh, that the American Fire Service has. The relationships there again that I made with so many um, great people around the country that are that are doing great things for the fire service, and really to to work with the folks at UL. I mean, we've been working. Take like Dan Majkowski. We've been working with him in the FDNY since since 1998 when he worked for NIST. So our relationship with with him and um, and Steve Kerber and all the all the rest of the folks there um, goes back uh, a long time, and so to our involvement with those studies, um, the FDNY typically has somebody that sits on one of those panels, and we always take the results of those studies, um, evaluate them, combine them, and evaluate them compared to our experience in the FDNY. And then when necessary, we uh, adjust and amend our written procedures uh, to reflect that. And we've done that for every one of the studies that have come, come out. So. In that study, we did strip malls, you know, slash taxpayers, uh, private dwellings, and then garden-style apartments. And the idea was, let's take it out of the laboratory and see how the results stack up against uh, in the laboratory compared to actual, you know, burning actual structures that were um, built out in the built environment. And so the one challenge, um, which the researchers knew all along, would be that there's there's more variables when you're out in a structure that's not built in a laboratory. So they were you know, repeating it in the same structure. They were able to get a lot of the same, you know, similar structures, especially with the taxpayers and the uh, strip malls. But those are some of the challenges that we face even in day-to-day -day operations, right? Um, the next fire you go to may have a building that's been, uh, you know, it's 100 years old. It may have been 
there may have been renovations to it a bunch of times, and there may be some subtle nuance or difference where, um, you know, that we may not expect in those structures. And that was kind of similar with, with these studies as well. But being part of it and, and being able to say, hey, let's try this. And we did that several times during the study. We said, hey, can we try this in real time with the, uh, uh, with the, the panel members there on scene? We, we would talk about it and be like, hey, let's, um, let's try this with a failed ceiling. Let's see how an exterior line um, looks with, an, with a failed ceiling. The, the lintel attack. Uh, you know, the lintel hit on exterior water um, came out of out of one of the studies that we were doing the first time we ever uh, tried that, and it was a success, right? And that because that relies on the visual cues, right? Exterior water relies on visual cues. When the ceiling's not there, um, you don't have the same visual cues. You're putting water out, and you're putting fire out in that enclosed space, right? Or that now with the ceiling down in that um, attic space. Uh, but you're not getting the same effect necessarily in that room. And by taking a line, holding it still 10, 15 seconds, and then putting it up onto the lintel, the top of the windowsill, we now get water into that room. So we get that cooling effect, gas contraction, um, reset of the fire, if you will, to then get in there and get after it. But we see that visual cue when we do that. So that was an important part, which is now, you know, that was something that strictly came out of what the uh, what the attack, attack panel members wanted to see. That was beautiful. I love the the lintel hit or the window frame and the door frame stuff that came out of that coordinated study. I thought that was some actionable data that or actionable uh, information that everyone could take to their fire departments uh, and then run with it. You also and that's the beauty of it, right? When when you yeah, look at absolutely. the yeah, when you look at the results, you know you could read the hundreds of pages, but if nothing else, if you look at the the takeaways, right? Those are actionable intelligence, and you can cherry pick. Hey, this works for my built environment. This doesn't implement what you can, but those immediately can be translated into into drills, uh, into training for your department. And um, you know, UL has done a great job putting out videos that you could use to train on that. In addition to all their online programs, so um, yeah, the, the, the complete package of, of from from day one to what you get at the end of the day to training from using their programs is really really good stuff yeah well said i think sometimes people get a little intimidated when they see a 500 page report but if you just look at the tactical tuesday videos or you look at all the tactical considerations uh, or the executive summaries that come from these they they almost make it turnkey for fire departments to take this information and and kind of shoehorn it into their operations um, which is super nice and convenient you're also a principal technical committee member on three different NFPA committees. That's 420, 1585, and 1710. Can you tell us a little bit about what got you into wanting to be a member of uh, these committees and then kind of what those three committees are responsible for? Sure. Well, the FDNY has um, representation on many NFPA committees. And it's critically important for the fire service to have departments and members that are willing to sit on these committees because. Quite frankly, the fire service needs to have representation at the table on these committees because um, and one of the things that I like to tell our leadership is if we need a seat at the table, otherwise we're going to have other people dictating to us um, some, of, some of these um, requirements. And every once in a while, right, you say, well, that's not really a realistic um, 
requirement. And you can write a great document that no one ever follows because you make it too restrictive or doesn't doesn't take into uh, fireground operations or, or whatever it is, right? We need to have a seat at the table and the FDNY is well, rep well represented, but um, the fire service in general can use more representation on these committees. So I certainly uh, encourage people to sit on these committees and um, you need the support of your department, like so many different things, we need the support, but convincing them of what the benefit is of them. And um, so the first committee that I uh, applied for was NFPA 1710. That's the response standard for predominantly career departments. Uh, fun fact, NFPA um, only has one standard that is different for volunteers and one that's different for careers, and it's the response standard. So NFPA, NFPA 1720 is for volunteers, 1710 is for careers. So that defines how many firefighters need to respond on their house fire or a high-rise fire, um, because it's vastly different. So if you have an area that's only private dwellings, all right, so you know you need 20-something firefighters there. But if you have an area that's high-rise, you know, you're in the mid-40s on how many people you need responding to that. So if you're a department that is starting to see big-time growth and you're seeing taller and taller buildings, you got to be paying attention to that because there is a different number when it's private dwellings compared to mid-rise compared to high-rise because the tactics are different. So the number of firefighters and the number of, of tasks that you need to complete um, are a little bit different. Uh, so we need to make sure based on your built environment. Um, so I, I love being on that committee and, and making a difference um, on that. The second committee that I applied for was um, 1585, uh, which is being, uh, it's, they're going to consolidate, the NFPA is in the middle of a consolidation phase. So um, uh, it, it'll be part of, I believe it'll be part of 1580. But 1585 is the contamination um, control standard. Um, and, and that's really how we make sure that fire ground contaminants um, don't spread off the fire ground and, and or minimize that to the, the impact that we can, both back to the station and hopefully not, not to your cars and, and home. Um, so that, that's the standard that's going to help us really reduce uh, cancer in the fire service. And fire service representation on that committee Make sure that it's that we're talking that we understand that we have a job to do on the fire ground. Um, and the bottom line is firefighting is a dirty job. Um, that's not going to change anytime soon. Uh, and we're and we're still going to get in. To, we're going to go in the building. We're going to put the fire out. We're going to save the victims. And um, but then it's just as aggressive as we are on the fire ground, we have to be aggressive in cleaning up and putting ourselves back in service. A and I think. That's an Achilles heel for us is that we're so good at putting our apparatus and tools back in service, but we neglect putting ourselves back in service properly, taking a shower as soon as you get back to quarters, for example. And there's so many different things that uh, that go into that. Unfortunately, there is no silver bullet on what you should be doing. Um, and the third committee that um, I'm most recently appointed to is a committee that uh, NFPA 420, which is the cannabis standard, which demonstrates that NFPA has a sense of humor that they they named it 420. Um, and um, that is the committee that I have the least knowledge about. And I've been learning so much from uh, from so many of the knowledgeable people on that committee. Um, you know, there's just 
it's new. Uh, the legalization of cannabis is is relatively new in New York. But when you look at some of the states out west, they have been they have had grow facilities and extraction facilities for quite some time. It's a much more mature industry out there. So I've been able to learn from listening to them uh, and then impart some of my experience on the firefighting end to kind of contribute um, to the document. But it's been eye-opening. The extraction process, which is, I, I believe they said the smoking of cannabis is only like 15 to 20% of the industry. But the extraction for all the other products, the CBD oil, all the other stuff is a big part of it. So when you consider that process and what they do, a lot of flammable liquids are used um, in the extraction process. And that has led to um, uh, buildings that have exploded when things go wrong. Um, also in the grow facilities where they, they, pump in, they pump in CO2 to help the plants grow better. Uh, go back to you know go back to sixth grade biology right and uh, and how and how plants grow best and those are things that I had never even given any consideration to so my ability to kind of let my organization know the direction that this standard may be going in that we can help out to say all right these are the things that we should be looking at when we start to have uh, these facilities that do extraction where do we want to put these places are they going to be uh, location restricted? Are they going to be high hazards? Those are all the things that will be um, will be part of what's in the standard. But I could read the tea leaves or, or marijuana leaves and um, let my organization know the direction that it's going so I could best represent my organization and the, and the people that were sworn to protect in New York City. Man, you are a, you are a busy, busy man, Chief. Uh, let's, uh... All about time management. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when when uh, I knew that we were doing this, moving this to today, I uh, I pulled up your your keynote speak uh, speech for uh, Firehouse Expo 2022 that you did, and I re-listened to it just so that I can make sure I don't miss anything. And uh, you, you highlighted that you wanted the whole thing to be about training, and uh, I, I I thought it was great. Uh, it was a great speech. Um, you kind of give us the origins of of what your thought process and and why you wanted to to hit training like you did on that? Yeah, well, so training is the organizational cornerstone of any successful organization. Um, and, and quite frankly, that doesn't even mean just fire, uh, you know, the business to fighting fires, right? So any type of business, you need well-trained and prepared employees. In the fire service, it's a matter of life and death. You show me a department or any organization that has an organizational top priority in training. And I'll show you a well-functioning department. As training goes, so does your department. It always, it always comes down to training. Your operations are successful because your members are well-trained. You're, you're safe because you're well-trained. You save lives, you search, and you find victims because you're well-trained, because you know what, how to do, you know, you, your size up properly, whatever it is, it all begins at training. And to be honest with you, that speech focused around training um, because of my conversation with, uh, with Pete Matthews, the editor of Firehouse, who said, we need a message out there of training. 
because there's a lot of, he says he speaks to a lot of people that talk about that their department don't value training. So for me, both in the FDNY and in my volunteer department, I know that training is an organizational priority in both of those locations. So I hadn't seen it the way it was being spoken to, to me. I, I now realize and see that there, from the comments and feedback that I've gotten, particularly from that keynote, that there's a lot of departments that may not have leadership that values training, um, certainly the way the FDNY does. For us, it's ingrained in our DNA. It's our, you know, we have a training culture, right? We, we have a lot of positive cultures in the FDNY, whether it's our training culture, whether it's our safety culture, our extinguishment culture, our search culture. There's so many different cultures, our culture of taking care of our families. So there's so many different parts um, that, that are great about the FDNY culture. And you know, they, they all coexist, right? Uh, and I talk about that from, especially as, you know, as, as now the, the chief of safety, you know, safety and aggressive firefighting, they go hand in hand. Right. I mean, if if you're unsafe and you get injured, I have to I have to commit an awful lot of resources to helping the firefighter get out of trouble. That that's no longer aggressive. Right. So we need to make sure somewhere along the line, the message, the message seems to have gotten lost or twisted. I'm not sure where that that safe and aggressive can't coexist. And I would say that they must coexist because. An aggressive, an aggressive fire department um, that's a safe fire department is the one that's saving the most lives, uh, including their own members' lives and, and, and safety. Uh, again, if I have to start committing resources to, um, to helping my people out, if you don't wear your waist strap and you get, you know, your waist belt and you get caught up on a bicycle, well, besides increasing your chances of not making it out of that fire, I now have to commit resources to that. A member that that's that gets to doesn't have a radio, doesn't have a, a working flashlight, but checking their equipment. That that's that's safety issues, right? Making sure that you have a working thermal imaging camera. These are these are safety issues. Making sure that a proper size up is conducted. That you're going in a window where there's a higher likelihood of a victim. That you understand if if a window. Um, it may be seconds. If you know how to read smoke, you should know that that window may be only you know a second or two away from uh, from flashing over. It's just little things like that. But you know, a safe, aggressive firefighter saves the most lives on a fire ground. That's the bottom line. Without having to have resources dedicated to them when they get jammed up. That was beautiful. There was a lot of wisdom in that last five minutes, uh, that last sentence you said that a safe and aggressive firefighter saves the most lives. Uh, I think that's beautiful. Um, I think everybody should make sure that they hear that. And for those listening, if they haven't heard the 2022 keynote from Firehouse Expos, do yourself a favor and go find that on the internet on firehouse.com and listen to that because this is something that everybody needs to hear. Uh, it was a great keynote, Chief. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, not only are you an eloquent speaker, but you're also a, uh, a very eloquent writer as well. Can you tell us about some of the articles that you've authored, uh, whether it's uh, locally um, uh, or, or, or internationally or nationally? Yeah, so um, I'm an I'm a avid student at a fire service. 
I read or listening to something fire related every day. Um, there is very little exception to that. And that was advice I got as a, as a young firefighter from my first captain. And he told me that. And that's something that I've, I've just always done. And at the time, there weren't podcasts. There wasn't all this. It wasn't audio books. So you were you had to be an avid reader um, to really consume the information. Now, like there's so many different ways to get better, uh, you know, on our job that like you're negligent. If you're not doing something to make yourself better, every opportunity you can. I mean, what, what are you doing? Right. It's just so it's literally spoon fed to you. You could find you could find stuff from you know, great stuff that from 30 seconds to, to two and a half hours out there or longer, some of these other programs. So there's, there's no excuse why you shouldn't be making yourself, you know, better uh, in your craft uh, every day. And um, when it comes to, when it comes to writing, um, I started writing for our internal magazine, uh, WNYF, uh, I guess about 12 years ago. And, um, Basically, I was training, I was working in, uh, in the battalion in Queens, in the 4-9 battalion, and um, I was learning about these CO2 systems. I had heard about an incident in Phoenix, and now we, we see them in Queens. And I'm like, you know, for the soda systems. And I, so I write, up this, I write up this little article, like two pages. I send it out to my units, and one of my drivers, they're like, Chief, this is really good. You should send this to WMIF. Um, so I did, and they loved it. And uh, to me, it was that I didn't understand. I had never heard of these Ocinis in New York City. And if if someone like me, who's very into the fire service and is always reading, doesn't know about it, there's others that don't. And so then, after that article, I got a lot of positive feedback, and I just started writing. I just started writing more. And then, you know, um, I had a fire in a, a place of worship in a church, Our Lady of, Our Lady of uh, Sorrows Church. Um, that was eight years ago. And uh, I think I wrote an article. I definitely wrote an article on that, but I think it was like my third or fourth article for WMF at the time. And um, I, I just continued to write about stuff that uh, I didn't know as much as I could have known. And um, here I am, 25 articles later in WMF alone, um, and articles published in, in most major uh, trade magazines at this point. Um, I love sharing knowledge and, and writing about topics that I think others can benefit from. And given that tactical uh, intelligence, right, that actionable intelligence that you can take every article, every podcast, every, everything I try and do, I try and make it where I add a little value to it, where there's something that you could pull out, like mining that gold, as you guys call it, right, that here's something that you could take tonight and implement on the fire ground for yourself um hopefully make it organizationally at some point um where it'll make you better not just listening to me pontificate about you know whatever topic um but the most recent issue of WNYF uh that just came out uh, I have three articles in it I have one on uh, sequential ventilation which is a way we um uh, we ventilate high-rise buildings after the fire is extinguished and we start on a lower floor and just make sure that we're pushing all the smoke out because that's going to create survivable space for other people in the structure if we didn't already get to them. The other articles that I wrote in there, the second one is on um, FDNY search culture. And 
the importance of that. And it talks, that article highlights that we simultaneously search while we are uh, stretching a hose line. And it's about putting water on the fire as soon as we can, but we are gonna be in there searching ahead of the, ahead of the hose line. And we save dozens of lives every year in New York City. There's rarely a day that goes by in New York City that we're not rescuing somebody from a structure. And you know, we average right around seven serious structural fires a day in New York City. So our data collection point is, is robust. And um, so that's article number two. And then the third article um, really was more a labor of love. It's a much longer article. It's uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 12,000 words. Um, and if you have a, a general idea of writing articles, an article that's around 700 words with one or two pitches gets read by a lot of people. When you get up to around 1,500, you kind of limit the people that are going to read it. When you write an article around 12,000 words, you know, it's almost like a book um, when you're talking about publications. But I didn't, I wrote that more from, for, for two real reasons. I wanted there to be, uh, I wanted that fire to be memorialized for the actions that our firefighters did. Um, and when I was writing it, I really didn't care if, it, if people read it. I cared more about, I wanted to make sure that, that those actions were preserved for all eternity when somebody in 10 years from now wants to read about, here's an official account in WMAF of that fire. Um, and that's kind of what that was, was to be a succinct version. Uh, I spent that article alone, I spent more than 30 hours putting together, reading the fire marshal's report on that fire from the FDNY was truly extensive. They interviewed so many people. We had video from every floor in that building. And um, just the Twin Parks fire is a uh, historic fire for many reasons in New York City. And again, that's the, that's the third article and it's the 25th article that, like I mentioned that I've written uh, for that publication. For those listening that might not be familiar with WNYF, if you go to fdnypro.org, uh, you can subscribe to that uh, amazing magazine as well. Um, and I can't wait to uh, kind of pull that thread on the Twin Parks fire here in a little bit, Chief, but but I think Jeff has another question for you. Yeah, so much much like how you started that that keynote uh, speech for Firehouse Expo 2022, you uh, you highlighted your family, which which we always feel is is very important here as well. So uh, we're going to give you a, a, a moment uh, to talk about your family and and you know highlight them and say how how much they support you and uh, everything anything else you want to add to that. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. So just listen, I couldn't do what I do without this, without the absolute and unwavering support of, uh, of my family, right? It starts with, uh, with my wife of more than 30 years um, and, and my kids, you know, Jessica and Justin. Uh, my daughter, Jessica, um, is a volunteer firefighter as well for the past 10 years. Um, and she's a career fire marshal as well. So, you know, to say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree and, um, and my kids are, are no different in that. In fact, as you mentioned, it's President's Day today, right? So it's a, it's a holiday, so, um, which, is why, which is why I'm home today in time management. And uh, last night, we were fortunate to be able to um, have my granddaughter over, uh, Liliana, who's 13 months old, 
I hear her running around upstairs now. My wife is watching her while I'm uh, while I'm downstairs in my office uh, doing doing this uh, podcast. But uh, yeah, you you need the support of your family, um, and you have to have a healthy uh, work life work life balance, and um, that's hard to do at so many junctions in your career. Work life balance is hard, but you you have to you have to make sure that you're spending time with your family because you want them to be there in the long the long haul um and that's a challenge right young in your career you're trying to work as much overtime as you can um you're trying to be there for all the all the um the nights out with the company and, and all the company functions it could be difficult and then if you want to study that's more time away from your family so uh, and i've studied for multiple ranks and it's it's a very, very competitive process in New York City. So you have to um, you have to put an awful lot of time and effort into that. And, uh, you know, there's uh, a guy out there, Dr. Donnie, who has a, a good work-life balance podcast. Uh, I was on his show. Actually, I was on his show twice. Um, and uh, at times, it's a, it's a challenge. But you have to make sure that your family knows that you appreciate them. And you have to make sure that you spend time with them. And when you're not... Um, let them know why, right? I remember when I was studying for um, uh, for chief, especially for, for battalion chief and deputy chief, my children were a little older. And I told them that I'm studying, I'm studying for you guys. I'm studying to, to, to help it where I can be home more or make a, a couple of more dollars that they'll, that'll you know, because um, the chief rank is different. You don't have, after that, you, you're not allowed to work overtime in New York City. So it kind of changes. And my kids would help me study. They would sit there. I made audio recordings, and uh, they would they would do some of the recordings. Um, because you think about a, a good little nugget when you're studying, just like when you're listening to a song. We memorize so many songs. Uh, if, if if I had something that I was having a hard time remembering, I would have my kids record it, and then I I would hear them saying it. Like on test day, then you recall it because oh yeah, that was that was my son said that in the in the recording. So. Um, just a little little test taking uh, pre preparation uh, nugget there for you. <laughs> that was beautiful. Uh, I had a chance to meet your son Justin uh, two days ago while you were presenting in Phoenix, and he seems like an incredible man. And uh, he had nothing but amazing things to say about his uh, illustrious father as well. Well, he loves the fire service and the, and the brother and sisterhood. He has he has always seen that that you could go anywhere in the world. And when you see another firefighter, you know, the next thing you know, you're hugging and you're invited in. And it's just it doesn't matter where you are. And he has seen that because rarely does a vacation um, end without us visiting a firehouse somewhere. So he's been in many firehouses around the country. <laughs> I love that. So we had to pare down because the chiefs, you know, vast expertise and experiences. We didn't quite know where to go. Um, or where to start with all this, but I thought kind of the lowest hanging fruit was to talk about cancer prevention. And your name is pretty much synonymous with cancer prevention in the fire service. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you uh, and your continued focus to make sure that firefighters across the globe are diligent about their their uh, their efforts to prevent cancer? Sure, um, and I appreciate the, the, the comments about that. I think um, we need more leadership in the fire service to speak about cancer and and how we need to best prevent cancer in firefighters and 
We see it now, it's getting the national attention. Um, the US Fire Administrator at Hush Summit last year, it was one of the key topics. The IFF is, is making it a key topic. So we're really seeing inroads being made. We're still seeing too many departments that aren't doing enough and some that aren't doing anything, which is hard to believe that there would be a fire department out there today uh, in 2023 that isn't doing all they can to best protect their members. But um, for me, there's a couple of things. Number one, I'm tired of seeing my friends die. Um, I've been, when my friend Ed McDonough uh, died of cancer, he was 49 years old. Um, I was holding his hand when he took his last breath. And no one should have to do that. But it really goes back to, for me, I was at a uh, fire chiefs association meeting. We have a, a fire chiefs association in New York City. And one of the speakers at that, one of the, one of the days was this lady who wrote a book called In the Mouth of the Dragon, Toxics in an Age of Plastics. Um, and while I was sitting in that meeting, I ordered that book on Amazon. And um, I've artificially, over the years now, I have artificially inflated the price of that book because whenever it's cheap, I buy more copies and give them out, give them away. It's been a while. I talk about that book a lot, so I haven't given away um, any copies in a while because right now I don't think you could get it for under $100. Um, and it's out of print. Interestingly enough, something I learned um, not too long ago was that that book was edited by Bobby Holton, the late, the late uh, great Bobby Holton from Fire Engineering. Um, and what that book did was it took six or seven fires from around the country, and they presented them in a way that I had never heard them presented. I was very familiar with the MGM Grand Fire. I was very familiar with the New York Telephone Fire, with several of the fires in that book. But I was not aware of those fires from a toxicology standpoint. And that was how it was presented in this book. And that just ignited a fire in me to learn more about it. I mean, our procedures have long talked about cancer in the fire service, but, you know, said, yeah, wear your mask, right? All these different things that there's different chemicals that you're exposed to. But now the other the other part of this, right, is we now have and Deborah Wallace, I couldn't think of a name. Deborah Wallace is the person who wrote that book. Um, she has a couple of uh, books out there that are pretty good. But um, we now have the research. When you look at what's going on in the fire service with the scientific research, we now know that there is a linkage to firefighter cancer uh, you know, and firefighting. In fact, IOC, a division of the World Health Organization, last year changed the designation of firefighter to a group one carcinogen. I mean, that's crazy. The profession of being a firefighter is considered, there's enough research that it's considered carcinogenic. I mean, that's like diesel, asbestos, benzene, firefighting. Like, which one doesn't belong? That's just you know, so there's enough research that we have to do all we can to best protect our members. And what does that mean? Well, that means every time after you touch your gear, that you wash your hands. You put your gear on, wash your hands when you're done. Before you go to the bathroom, testicular cancer, high rate in the fire service, more than double 
the rate of the general population. Make sure before you go to the bathroom, wash your hands. Before you eat, so we're not ingesting it, wash your hands. Clean the hard surface of, of your apparatus because the soot, everything is going to settle on those apparatus. When possible, place the vehicles uh, out of the way, at a, you know, out of contamination, you know, upwind at, a, at an incident, especially support vehicles. If, we go, if we're going to a surrounding drown, right, it's a third alarm fire and we don't have anybody inside. There's no reason to have all the vehicles marinating in the smoke at that point. Command post doesn't need to be in the, in the smoke. Chief's vehicles don't need to be even on the block, right? So you think about all those different things. And again, when you come back from a fire, shower as soon as you can. Place the firefighter back in service first. In fact, place the firefighter in service before you even clean the tools. Because the firefighter likes to say, we're going to put the apparatus back in service. But let me ask you a question. When you, when you leave the scene of a fire, have you ever left with empty SCBA cylinders? No, no one ever does that, right? So the rig is in service, just the tools aren't clean. So it's a pride thing. It's not that we're not ready to go to another fire because the firefighters, I joke around, the firefighters greatest, greatest dream, right? Is you come, you leave in one fire and on the way back, you run and you find another fire and you go to a second fire. And if you have empty SCBA cylinders, you, you can't fulfill that dream. Right? So I joke around about that, but it's, but, it's, but it's true. We need to put our greatest resource, our firefighter, back in service first. And that means when you come back from a fire, wash your gear, take a shower, change into clean gear, and then clean the tools on the apparatus. Because guess what? The Halligan will never get cancer. You have a pretty good chance of getting cancer in your career. Take the steps, simple steps, no coarse steps. That don't, and I'm, that doesn't mean don't be aggressive on the fire ground. Be aggressive on the fire ground. Wear your mask, but be aggressive. And then be just as aggressive getting yourself back in service. Because as someone told me, that will lead to bonus fires. Fires later in your career because you still are healthy enough to continue to go to fires. So you wanted to do a 35-year career. And, you, well, if you don't take care of yourself, you may not even do 20. The better you take care of yourself, the longevity will come with that. And the longevity, when you're talking about your family, matters as well. I want to be around, you know, my granddaughter, I want to be at her wedding. I want to be, when, I want to be around when she has kids. And that happens only if you take care of yourself. And, and that step begins at a young age. I wish that I had... Uh, a chief or somebody telling me when I first got on the New York City Fire Department or in my volunteer department, telling me the things that I'm talking about today. Because your future self will thank you for the actions you take today. And that begins on your very first day in the fire academy and continues throughout, throughout your career. No smoke is good smoke. Minimize our exposure to it whenever we possibly can and clean up as soon as we can when we get back. Never put your gear in your car without it being in a gear bag or without it being in um, a plastic bag. Never store your gear in your home. Don't wash your gear at home, but make sure your gear is being washed, whether you're doing it on scene with on scene wet decon, you know, preliminary exposure reduction, that you're sending it out to be clean. But we need to do better to save our firefighters' lives and extend them and give them those bonus years where 
where we go on those bucket list vacations and, and see grandkids and all those type of things that we want to do uh, later in life and retirement. We do a really good job planning for retirement, right? Financially, the firefighters are always giving advice around the kitchen table, but we got to make sure we take the actions to get us there. And that begins on day one. Wow, you uh, you pretty much knocked out three questions basically in in one. Uh, so that that uh, that was a great response. <clears throat> um, to to kind of add on that, is there anything else that you feel other than everything you touched on, having two sets of gear, showering, uh, anything else that either you think that firefighters could take away, or fire departments could take away, or maybe even some future technology uh, that that you think that we could see um, that would that would help us with this. Yeah, um, so I think I'll address the first part. So the two sets of gear, um, I would say we've done a good job on messaging that everybody needs a second set of gear. And I would just modify that a little bit and say, um, if you can't afford hose and you can't afford um, medicals and you're not doing annual medicals, and you know, so a small department may not need two sets of gear, but you do need enough spare sets of gear that fit your members. So if I go to a fire and my gear needs to go out, I need a second set of gear that properly fits me, but it doesn't need to necessarily be assigned to me. So I was having this conversation with, with, um, with a firefighter from a small department and I asked him, how many fires do you go to a year? And he said a half. I said a half. He goes, yeah, we go to one fire every two years. Um, they're a small department and they're not doing some of the other stuff that they need to be doing yet they're trying to make sure they have two sets of gear. So they may not need a second set of gear. 80% of firefighters fit into the same small um, number of sizes for gear, right? So the outliers, right? If someone's really big or someone's really small, they may need a second set of gear that's assigned to them because they might be the only person that's that size. But the 80%, you may be able to, be able to buy uh, uh, extra sets of gear for those people for the time that the gear goes out to be washed, right? Because it needs to be, if it's contaminated, it needs to go out to be washed. It needs to be seen by an ISP, an independent service provider, if we're following NFPA standards, which hopefully we're, we're trying to comply with those. Um, but again, if we're not doing some of these other things that, that, it co that cost money, but there's so many of the others, so many small things that don't cost anything. Um, every department has an SCBA. Make sure you're using that SCBA, not just wearing it on your back overhaul right those little things that we need to do when we talk about what's coming what's over the horizon down the road um i think we're going to eventually see uh blood tests that account for more cancer types i think that's something that we'll see that we don't have now because we don't have a sil silver bullet um uh there's no one action certainly no one test to do for, for that so that's something i think that's um coming over the horizon I think that we'll see gear that's different than our current gear. I think we're gonna we're, we're definitely gonna see changes in the NFPA standard on that, um, and the the PFAS, the PFOAs, and and what what's in our gear um, and what will be in our gear and not be in our gear in the future. I think is is certainly something um, that's gonna change. But what's the latest technology that's coming out, right? What is what's over the horizon that firefighters aren't really considering yet, because the the fire ground continues to evolve, right? Modern contents um, have evolved to such a degree. Now, 
we've been tracking, you know, lithium ion battery fires. So that's, we've been tracking those for several years in New York City, but that's changed the fire ground. Um, so there's so many things that are over the horizon. The FDNY, just, just this morning, we put out a, a tip from training and safety on autonomous vehicles. Um, and there's been over a dozen um, crashes involving autonomous vehicles that have crashed into emergency response vehicles that are operating on roadways. Um, and I know we're off topic a little bit, but you know, to me, a takeaway of that is you, we have to always be evaluating technology and, and tracking and see what does that mean to us? And in this case, um, we know that on a high-speed roadway, especially when traffic's moderate or light, we're going to see cars going very quickly. And we know to put our blocking apparatus out there. But what if you're on a side street? What if you're on a secondary or tertiary road where you're like, there's no cars around here? But an autonomous vehicle, or even if they are, they're not going fast. You don't know. They're going to stop. They see you. It's very different than a high-speed roadway. This now makes it where it's important. If there's no one behind the wheel or, to, or they're assisting with that, that, these incidents can happen anywhere because it's not necessarily human error. It could be just technology fails. And I think, so when we look at those type of things, what's over the horizon, um, energy storage system, lithium ion batteries, tall timber, um, you know, nanotechnology, things that they can make, gives you the ability to make things really big and really small. Um, structures are getting taller and taller. There's so many different things, um, drones, uh, just the technology that is out there. And we need to just continually uh, monitor that and see, and then ask yourself, how will this impact me? How will this impact my department? And is there anything that we should be changing based on that? That was, that was a great response, Chief. Um, Kind of going on to the next next thing, both both Nick and I are are both involved with the the firefighter rescue survey. So we both obviously like data metrics. Um, you mentioned in one of your classes that the FDNY tracks operational metrics. Can you kind of describe what you guys collect and uh, how you use this information? Sure. So we we monitor a lot of different data points, um, both on our MDT right. So we know from time of response to time on scene. Um, and then we have to go over our department radio for water on a fire. Um, and the same thing with when we find victims. So when we find a victim, uh, we got to broadcast that over, uh, over the air as well. So we have timestamps um, for all of that. And then um, when, it's, uh, when we don't find a victim within 15 minutes of the time of the, of the receipt of the alarm, right? So as soon as you call you know, 911, what's your emergency? Within 15 minutes of that time frame. Um, we're expected to have every victim accounted for, or we have to explain why uh, why we didn't. Um, and so that's that's important. And we we are always evaluating that type of data. And I think it gives you an opportunity to evaluate the time to test. Right? You should know how long does it take you to stretch a hose line? How long does it take you to put first water on a fire? At least ninety percent of the time, right? And I would say in New York City, in 90% or greater than 90% of the time, we have water on a fire within seven minutes of the receipt of the alarm. Now, obviously, when you have a taller building, you've got to understand that that's going to increase the time to water. It's going to take me a lot longer to get water to the 70th floor than it will to the seventh floor or the first floor. 
Um, where are we finding victims? We track the data where we're finding them. What's the percentage of victims that we find on the second floor, seventh floor, above the seventh floor? The time of day, who's finding them? That's all data that, um, that, that we have. We had a, um, uh, we call it a FOMI project, which is a partnership that we have with Columbia University. And we had uh, a group do that last year and evaluate um, the data from several decades. Um, and we amended our search bulletin um, earlier this year, in fact, to account for the data that they had, along with the search study from UL and the FDNY experience, what we're seeing. And we're able to, in real time, give considerations to our members. Hey, these are the things that you should be considering because where you found a fire victim in 1970 inside of a structure appears to have changed to where you find a victim of a structural fire in 2023. And if you're not, if you're not making data-driven decision-making, if you're not using the data to drive what you're doing, then you're just guessing, right? Oh, I heard that that victim was found in the bed. Well, all right, well, we know that the victim was found in the bed. And we know years ago that that victim may have gotten up, got a pot of water, went to the kitchen and tried to put that fire out. That's not happening as often today. Today's contents are different. They're, they're, you're, you're becoming incapacitated quicker. But we're not guessing at that. We know it, right? And that's, and that's kind of the crux behind uh, the data that you guys have collected, right? And that's, um, it's actionable intelligence immediately for the fire ground for how you're going to operate. And for us, that's incorporated into our, into our search bulletin. So a, I can go on. I've got plenty of examples of, of how, how we do it, right? We, uh, I'll give you another. We're always tracking small failures. Um, and, and what's working and our post-incident reviews um, and incident action reviews, they produce a lot of that. So uh, I'll get, when I, when I was at the fire academy and when I was at training, I would get the uh, raw notes of that, right? So we put, out, we put out a consumable document after that for our members, but I would be able to see that the same things are happening. So then we would know, well, we need to train on that. And maybe it's not training. Maybe there's a problem with the tool. Maybe there's a problem, something's changed. And we'll evaluate those and address those. Sometimes it's just, we'll put an awareness bulletin out on a tip from training and safety. Other times we'll, we'll have units come down and we'll see, we had a problem with our saws. They were, they were uh, shutting off um, at certain instances. So we recreated, we recreate the scene and see if, what the, if, there's, if it's repeatable, or if so, is it a training issue? Is it equipment issue? It could be just a fuel issue. So there's all different things, and we are constantly doing that. And I say, as a high reliable organization that tracks small failures and wants to be better, um, we're able to do that. And I think that's another important feature of uh, of a learning organization. And I often speak about how often the FDNY changes our procedures. You know, we change our procedures on average twice a month. Now. That doesn't mean a wholesale change. It could be just, hey, when you're when when you're searching, consider this. Be mindful that victims are not always found in the path of egress in 2023. Be mindful that the inside team is finding more victims today than the outside team. It could be because we have a ventilation limited fire, and we're holding off on ventilating uh, earlier in the fire, and the inside teams by by default, are finding the victims. 
stuff that needs needs further um, evaluation to conclude. So that's why we put them as consideration. Be mindful of, of that. So there's two examples of how we uh, try and try and make data driven uh, decision making in the FDNY. I absolutely love the fact that you guys are looking internally and getting real-time data for your department. I don't think enough of us actually do that. I think oftentimes we have this, uh, this misbelief that we are faster at doing things, that we're stronger at things, and that we're bigger uh, at, than we really are at times. We could probably ask our wives about that. Um, but when you actually look at how long it takes you to initiate search or complete search or get water on the fire, that's probably going to be different than what we think it is. And using the real data to drive your decisions and to drive your trainings, I think is something that all of us need to do. So kudos to, to FDNY for, for looking at the actual data. There's a, there's a great quote that I think Katie Couric, uh, at least I attributed to Katie Couric, is we're looking for information, not affirmation. And kudos to to you guys for looking for the actual information. Um, yeah, a, that. And, and you can see it, right? We've we change our procedures, right? We've our wind driven procedures, right, are based off of the research that we were involved with with yeah. UL. Yep. And you know, so hey, we're we're okay with changing, right? If it's going to mean that we're going to save um, more victims on the fire ground, and we're going to uh, keep our firefighters safer doing that, um, we're all in because at the end of the day, I want every single one of my firefighters to go home to their family and their loved ones. And if we can do that and save lives um, at the same time, well, that's what, it's, that's what it's all about. No one, no one signed up for our profession um, to, to die in a line of duty, right? They, they signed up to um, we know that that's a risk. Obviously, we know that, and that's one that we accept. But we signed up to go and save lives, and come home at the end of the day to our loved ones. Well said. And I want to circle back, and I, and I we we mentioned this a little bit earlier that we're going to uh, spin back to the the Twin Parks fire. But you've been the the IC at numerous large uh, fires and, and other incidents throughout your time at FDNY. But there was a, a pretty significant one, an historic one that happened uh, a little over a year ago in January of 2022, which was the Twin Parks fire. While there was so much to mourn, applaud, and learn from this historic fire, um, and you literally give a class on this fire, can you, to, as we get started here, can you briefly describe the fire before we kind of peel this onion a bit? Sure. So the, the Twin Parks fire was uh, January 9th of 2022. Um, I was a citywide tour commander that morning. It was a Sunday morning. Uh, I was at the fire academy, so I had a uh, I had a pretty good head start going to this fire that was in the Bronx. Uh, Bronx is right next to the uh, the fire academy, so it's not that uh, like I said not that far. Um, and we were behind, um, you know, we were behind the eight ball early on. This this fire uh, had smoked throughout the building uh, prior to our arrival. Our arrival was under our first engine was there in under three minutes, and. Um, we we transported more than 60 people uh, to the hospital, uh, 32 of them in cardiac arrest, and 17, and unimaginable, 17 people would lose their lives um, in this fire. The fire apartment was a duplex apartment. It was a duplex down. That means you have living space on two levels, and the fire began in the lower level of this 
apartment. So essentially, you had a cellar fire above grade. And that's an important consideration for this fire as well. Okay, so while, while the scope of this incident uh, is hard for most people to wrap their heads around, uh, while this fire was incredibly tragic, uh, also had, had a lot of, of, of good things and how many lives were saved. I, I believe you, you even said it in your speech, uh, over 100 lives uh, saved, uh, 100 rescues performed. Uh, how did the FDNY operational mentality lead uh, to all the brothers and sisters affecting so many rescues? Yeah, so it's, it's that winning mindset that's ingrained in the FDNY firefighter. Um, we play to win on every tour, every run, every time out the door. Losing or failure is simply not an option. And that mentality which begins with preparation and training and our dedication to the mission um, is, is, is key, is central to the success. Yeah, we, we rescued um, at least probably far more than 100 people from that, uh, from that building. There were 120 apartments in the building, 118 of them were occupied at the time of the fire. Um, uh, not everybody, left the building a lot of them a lot of them we sheltered in place when when we were able to get to them to tell them to stay unfortunately a lot of people left their apartments something that we certainly would not advocate for for the majority of the occupants we would have preferred that they stayed um, in their apartments but our ability to um our ability at coupled with our training our dedication really was was central to that and there's so many takeaways Regardless, regardless if you have one of these buildings in your area or not, the, the transferable lesson to somebody, no matter where you, no matter where you live, I mean, the sino kits that we administered, right, from an EMS standpoint, how how many lives did they save, right? I mean, that is a game changer um, today, uh, and you know we have them. We have many ambulances that that carry them, um, and they were administered early on, but knowing. How many, how many people can your hospital take, right? You have one hospital in your town and you have an incident that creates 10 or 15 victims. Where are you bringing them? Especially if they're in cardiac arrest, right? How many people, how many victims can your local hospital take in cardiac arrest? Kind of got to know that. And what's the surge capacity? What if you needed 20 ambulances? What if you needed 60 ambulances? How fast can you get them on scene? Those are all different questions that, you need to be preparing for. Where are you bringing them? Street management plan. How are you going to get them in? How are you going to get the ambulances out? That's an Achilles heel, right? That's always hard. Um, where's the ambulance? That's 75 miles that way, right? It's, it's you know, so often an afterthought, knowing where they are. As an incident commander, I always ask where, I see an ambulance crew, where is the closest ambulance? Okay, they're on the corner. Are you able to get out if we need you to get out? Yes. Okay. So then when we take a victim out, or God forbid a firefighter out of the building that needs an ambulance, we know exactly where to bring them. And we don't lose precious seconds running the wrong way. We know where the ambulance is. We know if it's an ALS or a BLS ambulance. Critical, critical points. Um, making sure we were able to, um, understanding ICS and, and making it where we have a manageable span of control. We set up different sectors on different floors. 
and then assigned resources to the chief offices that we had on those floors. So they can account for all the victims or all the people on those floors. All right, we're sheltering, you know, in, a, in apartment 15A, I have five people sheltering in place. In apartment 4J, I have three people that, that, um, that are complaining of difficulty breathing, and we're going to bring them down. Whatever it is, but we, we have it manageable, right? Span of control, 3D7, 5B and ideal, and, and we're able to do that and assign resources um, to do that. But it doesn't have to be a 19-story building. It could be a large shopping complex. It could be a place of worship. And maybe you have a front sector, a mid sector, a rear sector, or however it is that, but sector it out. That way you, you have that. The transportation corridor. Are you going to bring all the, you know, I have the walk in wounded. They're going to go to one area. They may not need to be treated and transported right away. But now I have all these red tag patients that, that need critical treatment. Those are the people that are in cardiac arrest. So their immediate transport and, and making sure you're calling for the resources that you have to do that. Those are some of the, the, the big points. And then you look at the first due truck. So we got reports while they were responding of victims unconscious on the fire floor. The stage was set. Bad things were happening, and we needed to try and overcome them. The first due truck goes in there. They find five people in the fire apartment, in, the, in an apartment. It's actually the apartment across from the original fire apartment. And then they find a sixth person at the door to that apartment. So your first due company, and at that point, they have the inside team with them, right? So you're talking about the officer, a can firefighter, and an irons firefighter. And they have double the amount of victims of the people they have. So what's your plan? More resources start coming. But how long does it take you to take, and what's your time to task? Can you get a victim out in a minute, in five minutes, in 10 minutes? How long does it take your department based on your crew, based on your training to get someone out in a one-story structure, in a two-story private dwelling, the sixth floor of a multiple dwelling? What's your time to task? And how many people do you need to, to do that? We were sending truck companies in, assigning them to upper floor, and they were taking a stairwell up. And they'd come out a couple of minutes later with a victim. At first, I turned to one of the other chiefs at the command post and I said, where's all the adults? Because at first we were seeing just children. Well, a firefighter, one firefighter can easily take a child and take them out of the building. It's very difficult for a firefighter by themselves in a crowded stairwell to remove an adult that weighs in a neighborhood of 200 pounds and is unconscious. So remove that person from the fourth floor stairwell by yourself. It's gonna take time. And it's probably gonna take additional resources. But you need to know that. You need to have an idea of what your capacity, what your capabilities are beforehand. Because when the tone goes off like that day, I didn't train anybody that day. The opportunity to train was over once the tones went off and we were responding to that incident. You either were good at what you do or we were going to find out what, what deficiencies you may have. And our members performed Herculean in that building. And if we didn't have the dedication to teamwork, 
to training and having 1710 compliant staffing, the outcome would have been different. It would have been vastly different. We would have saw many more lives lost if it wasn't for our, our dedication to teamwork and our training. And again, 1710 compliant staffing. But I want to circle back a second to the first new truck that's in there um, and the teamwork. Their ladder chauffeur puts the ladder to the window and they remove all but one victim winds up being removed via the aerial. And one victim was not removed by the aerial. And that was because of the conditions in the hallway were not conducive to bringing victims via the way that they went. And that's something that's pretty common in the FDNY. But firefighters need to be mindful of that. We're creatures of habit. If we come in the front door, we expect to go out the front door. Are we considering sheltering the fire, sheltering a victim in place? Are we considering removing a victim from a portable ladder or a fire escape if there's one on the building and you're able to use it? Are you considering the alternate methods of removal? In the FDNY, we do that. And that's in our procedures. It's been, our, it's been in our procedures for decades. We have a priority order of removal. Obviously, I'd rather remove somebody down a staircase than down a portable ladder, especially if they're, un, if they're unconscious. But we have that. What we've added to our search bulletin is to make sure, and this is, this is something, again, all firefighters knew and understand, but we wanted to make sure that they're mindful of how far off the floor the breathing zone. We could make a great move, get in there, and drag them out in an environment that's unsurvivable, either for thermal or for toxi toxicity. And we don't want to do that because breathing rate is already higher when you start breathing in products of combustion. And you could drag somebody out, have them at the three or four foot level, which it could be an unsurvivable level. We have our SCBA on, but we got to be considering the victim's breathing as well. And just being mindful of all those different things is some of the stuff that we did. So there's some of the takeaways um, for that, for um, for anybody, because it, these incidents can happen anywhere. And you got to be prepared for them, both in knowing with the outside stakeholders, how many, you know, where you're going to get 60 ambulances, what's your plan, but also what's your plan internally, how you're going to get the number of firefighters, what, again, we've said it a couple of times today, that time to task, can you complete something with the staffing that you have? Because uh, I think we could do it is not an answer. It's incredibly powerful to you to listen to you talk about the scope and scale of this incident and how proud you are of the, as you say, Herculean efforts of, of all your members there that day. And you talk about how historic fires need historic recognition. One more time, I just want to distill this down for all our listeners and to try to put the scope and scale of this event into, into a sentence or two. But FDNY transported over 60 victims throughout this fire, performed CPR on an astounding 32 victims. At one time, you had eight engine companies performing patient treatment at a time, at one time, <clears throat> with one company performing CPR on three people at once. Your first two truck came across six victims and you guys saved dozens 
and dozens of lives, untold number of lives were saved that day. I just want to make sure we distill that down and give all these brothers and sisters the recognition that they deserve. Um, and I think you do a great job of that, Chief. So, so thank you for that. While we're on the topic of learning from incidents, can you tell us a little bit about the FDNY's training tips? And then as a quick little sidebar, I'm going to, I'm going to shoehorn in another question, but can you uh, tell people where to find those nuggets as well? Yeah. So we, we produce um, a tips from training and safety uh, bulletin. Um, last year we produced around 160 of them. Um, this year, I think we've produced around 20 of them. Uh, we typically don't have them, you know, so people ask, how do you get them out so quickly? Um, do you have them all pre-made pre and ready to go? And no, we just wait, wait, wait a little while. There'll be an incident today or tomorrow that'll be relevant that we could put a tip from training on because we don't want to become background noise. If we're not teaching you something or reminding you of something that you need to know, um, then we're not going to put it out. I joke around, the only ones that we pre-make are related to health and safety of firefighters, um, particularly cancer ones. Um, and, you know, they're the ones that are viewed the least. So we, uh, I call it clickbait, right? We, we've changed, we used to put them out, read this cancer tip that we have on um, how to best protect yourself from, from occupational cancer. And it'd be crickets, nobody would open it. Now we changed it to, um, here's, a, here's a link to uh, an important, fire safety consideration or whatever, right? Uh, and then they open it and they're like, ah, it's cancer, you know, but it's too late. But we see, I, I speak about wall space, right? How important it is. If you're creating good content, one of the fastest ways to see it is visit a firehouse. And if your product was, if someone took the time to print it out and hang it on the wall, you know that you have quality um, content. And I could go into any firehouse in New York City and I will see many different versions of content that we put out uh, in training and in safety. And, um, you know, I know that that's precious, valuable real estate on those walls. And, uh, I, you know, my team is very proud when, when we do that. And uh, there's oftentimes we'll put a tip from training out the very same day as an incident, oftentimes while we're still on scene, if it's a longer duration incident. Um, and if it's on the local news, uh, then our, our members, they want to know about it. They already hear, hear about it, right? Um, so when they see that we send something out about it, uh, they're looking forward to it and they want to read because now they're going to get some insight and in what it means to them in real time today. And we capture that intentionally whenever, whenever we can, whether it's the, 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 um, the, the life-saving rope evolution that we performed uh, last year, I was the I was the uh, one of the ICs at that incident as well, and just letting our people know, hey, this is what happened here, um, and it was it was uh, downloaded and, uh, and and drilled on by the majority of our of our folks within 24 hours. Which is even that we capture our metrics. Are we are we hitting the mark? You know, so when we get a thousand downloads in the first two hours. Um, from our members, we know we know we're doing we know we're doing it right, and that's what we we, we track that. That's how I know our cancer tips um, lag significantly behind uh, a quality firefighting tip, especially one that everybody knows about. And where can people find these if they if they were uh, 
if they're listening to this right now, they don't know where to find all these training tips. Yeah, they're often shared on social media, but I know we have um, uh, on each of the tips, it has an air, it has an email that you could um, uh, send an email to and you can get added to it, uh, training tips at fdny.myc.gov. Um, and uh, one of our guys uh, that works with it will will have you added to, to the list and you can get them in, in real time. Perfect, thank you. Awesome stuff. Uh, while you were in training, Chief, what uh, what are some of the successes that you are most proudest of from your your time in that in that division? Ooh, so they made me the um, they made me the chief of the fire academy, um, right at the right at the very beginning of the pandemic. Actually, it was two weeks before the pandemic because I was the I was at the fire academy, and two weeks later they shut down. We shut down training. Um, so here I was. Um, it's an incredible honor and a privilege to serve as the chief of the fire academy. And here I am, they, they asked me to take this position. That's like coming on and managing an all-star team. You know, I already had been working with training for many years with different projects. I know the staffing I have there. I know the dedicated people, all the programs they have. So I'm like, this is going to be great. We'll just take it to, to the next level. Uh, you know, I, I'm friends with the Previous chiefs that have served in these positions, I know the dedication and what they put in. Uh, I know some of the stuff that they still wanted to do, and this is going to be, it's going to be great. Then we shut down training, and we're not training in the FDNY, and who that didn't sit well with with me and, and some of my team. They took the majority of my people back to the field, um, and there we were, just a couple of us sitting there, and we decided we developed a remote tactical training unit. And we delivered live training to the field. We took our small team, we bought some equipment, and we would just go out on location. The very first one we went to, we found a, uh, a taxpayer strip mall that the owner was gonna, um, he's gonna be taken down in a couple of weeks. And we went there, had one company join us, and we cut the roll down gate. And um, it was, we broadcast that live to a couple of different units as a test case, and it was very well received and then we expanded that and then we put 10 companies on it a day and then now we expanded it where um we don't it's not mandatory for you to come on but if you want to come on to this training we do it monday through thursday 10 30 and 11 30 um and now we always average uh, over 30 companies that go on it per per time we do the, the training um that's that coupled with our video production unit at the fire academy have certainly been uh, two of our major accomplishments because we have now um, we built on what was there previously and just made it where we reach more firefighters every single day training. That's the goal, right? We reach, it's not a, um, that's not a substitute for hands-on training. Uh, it's to facilitate and to use to, in addition to that. So we have this conversation, we talk about cutting a roll down gate. We talk about whatever it is that we're going to talk about. And then what companies are telling us is that they're then going and continuing the drill after that. Each of these drills, we come on, we do it live. 15 minutes later, the drill's over. And then the companies talk about it the rest of the tour. They go out to pick up the meal. They may look at their, you know, one of their buildings in their area. And that's what we want. We want to facilitate training and make sure that you have as many consumable avenues to get training that you can. 
We've also greatly enhanced our learning management system in the past several years. Um, and just the way we integrate technology. Um, new firefighters, this generation of firefighters learn differently. And we have to make sure that we adapt to the new firefighter and meet them where they are and best train them and best provide that. And that means having a, uh, a training delivery mechanism that is online that they can use on their phone. Ask a, ask a young person if they have a, a home desktop computer. Not many of them do, but they all have a phone and that's where they get the information. So that means our information must be easy to find on a mobile device. And if it's not, you're missing, you're missing your mark because the young firefighters are doing that. It doesn't matter that I have a desktop computer. It doesn't matter that I have a laptop computer. You gotta ask your young firefighters, what is the next generation learning? It's all part of being, what, what's the latest technology that's coming out? That's impacting our built environment. That's invent, impacting our response, but it's also impacting the way we train and teach our newest generation of firefighters. I appreciate it. I hope every training officer uh, and training chief listens to what you just said there. I appreciate it specifically when you're talking about making sure that you're meeting uh, everybody kind of halfway uh, or meeting them at their door. I think that's super important. Yeah, our new our probies now, we get, our probies get a, um, uh, they get a tablet computer on their first day of probie school. Okay. And they, and there, there's so many videos and, and a lot of their content is on there. Um, and we're able to track how many hours they're on there. So there's benefits to using this technology um, to handle the bandwidth. We had to have a, a cell tower installed at the fire academy and stuff like that. So there's other changes that, that, that are going to come, but it's, it's, it's all about making that long-term commitment and investment in your people. Again, I said it earlier, your greatest asset is your people. Um, your actions should mirror that commitment. Beautifully stated. Uh, kind of switching to some questions that we ask everybody here um, as we're kind of wrapping up here. But these are big, broad brush strokes. But when it comes to the fire service or training or any part of the fire service, what are we doing well? And then what could we improve on? Well, we're doing an exceptionally good job of minimizing the number of firefighters that we are losing inside of structures. Um, the numbers in the last decade show that. That's not by accident. And we have to continue to talk about what kills firefighters. And what injures firefighters and what historically has injured and killed firefighters. Because if we don't constantly talk about um, fire dynamics, building construction, um, search, if we're not talking about those and how to do them um, as safe and, and maximize our efforts to save people, then we'll see an uptick in those. So we've been holding steady. I think last year there were nine, which is way too many firefighters that were um, were killed inside of structures. But that number, if we're not, if we move, if we don't focus on, we don't continue to focus on those actions, those changes, that, that knowledge that has got that level down, then we'll, if we keep our, if we, you know, if our eyes off the ball, we'll see an uptick in that. And we don't want to see an uptick in that. But we also have to attack the reasons that firefighters are dying um, 
now, right? And, and hopefully continue to lower the number of firefighters killed in the line of duty. And those are cancer, cardiac, responding to, uh, responding to, to calls, whether it's in a civilian vehicle or a department apparatus, um, we lose way too many people. So we have to focus efforts on the you know, data-driven decision-making. What's killing firefighters today? We need to be training on those. Behavioral health issues. The number of firefighters that, that are committing suicide, right? We have to look much further and preload. We have to, earlier in a firefighter's career, and preload them with the knowledge to cope with some of the stresses that they're gonna see on the job. Because I don't think we do a good enough job of that. And that's, we see that when firefighters go to our counseling unit, we see that in the number of suicides and we simply, we need to do better. And I think preloading them before you have, before you see a dead person for the first time, before you see a, a human body that um, it is not meant to be seen the way they are. We see a lot of things and you can't unsee what we see, but we have to make sure that we are best equipped with the tools and techniques to overcome them. Because it's, it's not just about the line of duty deaths, it's the injuries and it's the long-term scars that we need to uh, address. And we're starting to see that um, certainly in some areas but we, we certainly need more improvement uh, in, in other areas when it comes to, when it comes to that. So um, that's some of the stuff we're doing well, some of the stuff we're not doing well. I like to, I like to focus on what we're doing well. Um, obviously occupational cancer still, still is a big problem. We just need to do more to be better with that. I think we need to be better at understanding fire dynamics. Um, it is the building block to what we do. Uh, and the better you are at it, the better you're going to operate, the more aggressive you're going to be. Uh, it's all interconnected. And those are the things I think we need to, um, uh, to be better at and, and also highlighting the things that we're doing really well. Excellent. Um, now let's uh, let's say you could see into the future. What do you think fire service training uh, is going to look like in the next ten to ten to twenty years? Oh, I love this question. So we're already starting to see it. We have people in our training academy looking at it, um, and it's the gamification of of learning. It is the virtual reality of learning. And you know when we look at um, you know uh, I've put on the, the 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 goggles that they have and and some of the stuff. It's you can train, you can deliver high fidelity training in a virtual environment. It's getting better virtually every day. It, the training on these things are getting better. And you could preload different scenarios into, into so especially into, into your IC, right? So experiences are transferable to a great degree. If I have an experience, hopefully today, a lot of the lessons that were learned and reinforced from the Twin Fox fire in addition to some others, are now your experiences and your listeners' experiences. So when you go, if you have an incident that is even remotely similar, you'll be able to plug that in to what you're doing, and it's your experience. Virtual reality gives us the ability to do that on a much broader and grander scale. And I think that is huge 
when we when we think about where we're going with fire you know fire department training and i think um that's not that far away so i think that's going to be uh, the next great change to uh, to how we train all right this is maybe my favorite question uh, every week that we do this um and there's kind of four parts to this and they can be related to the fire service but they don't have to be related to the fire service they could be something completely uh in another domain but what's the best class you've ever attended so that is like a trick question yeah. um that is there's there's so much there's so much good out there i mean um so to, to uh i'm going to kind of evade it because i love going to fdic i like going to firehouse expo um <laughs> the small conferences are great um and there's so many people that are teaching great stuff out there that um it would be impossible for me to i've had i've been impacted by so many people in my career and so many classes that i've taken from uh from instructors that i've sat in in our class uh, on their class and it was the first class they ever gave and i took something away from that just as much as sitting in on on a chief dunn class or you know uh someone who's been around the fire service for a long time so everybody has an important part to play uh and I'm telling you that I have learned from junior people in the fire service as much as I have from some of the senior members in our fire service. So um, for your listeners out there that have never taught at a major conference, put in for it. They're always, they always have spots for, for new presenters. And if you have a good topic and you have some subject, subject matter expertise on it, um, then talk about it, especially if you have an incident that you're talking about. Now, I'm not saying don't go out there and talk about high-rise fires if you've never been to one, right? Um, don't just regurgitate stuff that you've gotten in books. But if you have real-life experience in something, then you should be out there teaching about it. And, I've, and I think I probably learned the most from classes where someone's talking about an experience at a fire that they had. Because that fire, whether it was a close call or a line-of-duty death, that experience is now my experience. And I will operate differently based on something that I learned from that class. So learn something from everybody. All right, I, I appreciate the second half of that answer. The first half you kind of weaseled out very chiefly of you, <laughs> uh, but the vicarious experience and learning from everybody, I think were important points. Uh, so I appreciated those parts. All right, this one, I don't think you can chief out of. Um, what's the best book you've ever read or, or one of your favorite books? All right, so I'm gonna give you a couple. I'll make up for the last answer. Even better, this. even better. So um, Thinking Fast and Slow, um, transformational book that I was exposed to uh, when I went to the Naval Postgraduate School. It was one of the first books that we were required to read. Um, and it is an exceptional book. And you'll learn, uh, I still refer to it, and it'll, uh, system, system One and Two Thinking, um, it's, just an, it's just a fantastic book, especially as, as a chief officer, um, or as an officer in, in in any rank i've been in the office for 20 years now and that it gives me an insight onto how i'm thinking and what my gut is telling me right and what that means and i so i think that's an exceptional book uh why we sleep by matthew walker excellent yeah. excellent book if you don't value sleep you will after you read that book um that's also available as uh, uh both of those books actually available as audio books as well 
Um, and both of them I've read and listened to. They're really good books. In the Mouth of the Dragon, I mentioned that earlier. Um, it is really good, uh, although it's hard to find. And um, think again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know is uh, one of my most recent books that I read. And I absolutely love that book. I love that book so much that, and I do this actually often, is um, if I'm reading the book, I'll, I'll screenshot um, different, different, uh, uh, different sentences that I like. And I think from that book, I have about 50 sentences of top things that, uh, uh, that, that are just great sentences where you just like, you know, and it's about, the, again, the power of knowing what you don't know and recognizing that to be better, right? Uh, uh, and that's what gives you that, um, I think it's in uh, karate, they talk about the beginner's mindset. And uh, that ability to keep your mind open and always learn. I, I say, stay learnable your entire career. Um, and if you do that, um, you'll be you'll be rewarded. Whether it's rewarded that uh, you made a the, the right decision when you were searching, whether you made the right decision as the incident commander, there's there's lots of ways that you're rewarded on the fire ground for the knowledge that you put in. Um, and so, yeah, those are probably the there's, there's plenty of other books that I could that I could certainly um, go into, but you you only ask for one. I think Young Men of Fire that talks about the Man Gulch Fire for wildland fires. I think is um, uh, is another exceptional book. Talking to Strangers uh, by Malcolm Gladwell. Actually, almost any book from Malcolm Gladwell. And I, I mentioned that one because I just recently in the past year I listened to that um, on audio, which is. Uh, the audio version of that is very different than most other audio books that you listen to. But, uh, you know, again, that, that author, Blink, there's, there's a lot of books uh, uh, from, from that author that, that are really good. Yeah, Tipping Point, Outliers, Gladwell's, Gladwell's are great. Uh, thank you. Those are great, great books. Uh, again, I think we had Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman. I think we had uh, Why We Sleep by Dr. Walker uh, in The Mouth of the Dragon. And think again by Adam Grant, I think. And I think he threw in yeah. one more about the Gulch Fire too. But uh, yep. for those that are keeping score at home. Yep, Young Men of Fire. Uh, Young Men of Fire, thank you. Yeah. Um, all right, lastly is uh, what pad- podcast do we need to be listening to? Oh my goodness. Uh, so um, I listen to, I probably listen to 30 or 40 different podcasts um, obviously there's not enough time in the day to listen to every episode. Um, so what I do is I'll take a podcast and I will, uh, especially when, when I'm introduced to a new podcast and I'll look at all the guests that they've had on that podcast and I'll, I'll select shows that I'll watch, um, you know, specific shows. It may be somebody that I've never heard that person speak before and I want to, you know, about a, a specific guest, um, Especially it's cool when I'm introduced after I'm introduced to somebody um, and I'll, I'll look back and I'll be like, wow, this person was on this podcast like five years ago. Um, and then I'll listen to the podcast and then I'll call them up and be like, yo, I just listened to the podcast you were on. And they're like, when was I on a podcast? I'm like, in 2018. <laughs> so as I mentioned, everybody, um, as long as you're not teaching people unsafe or preaching unsafe actions on, on the fire ground, Everybody, we all contribute to the greater good of the fire service. And that includes 
the many podcasts that are out there. And again, it's it's consumable information for for people. And there's there's so many good ones out there. Again, it'd be like it'd be like asking me uh, which of my children is my favorite. I, I like them all, and I specifically pick certain episodes to to listen to. Obviously, there's a few podcasts that uh, I may listen to more often, but that's it's strictly based on to me. It's strictly based on who the guests who the guests that they're having are, because there's so many good uh, good ones out there, including obviously including the one we're on now. Uh, well, well said, chiefly again, but uh, at, from, coming from a chief, I guess that makes sense. Uh, but but wise nonetheless. Uh, we just want to say thank you for coming on here today, Chief. Is there anything else that you want to, to get across to our listeners before we kind of sign off? No, I think we hit a lot of topics. I appreciate the invite. I appreciate what what, what you two are doing uh, for the for the fire service. Um, I'm, you know, happy I was able to spend some time with you. Uh, recently in Phoenix as well. Um, that was great. Your presentation was fantastic. And, uh, you know, I look forward to uh, to seeing what, what the future has when we talk about data and Brooklyn. Brooklyn's on the board. Oh, oh boy. Just so you know, Brooklyn's <laughs> on the board. So, because if it goes to a fourth alarm, I have to respond. So I got to, so I got to have my phone nearby. It's the there greatest okay. school ever. Um, when they notify me of every fire, um, that we have. So yeah, Brooklyn's on the board, just so you know. All right, we'll keep us posted. We'll uh, <laughs> we'll turn on the signal app and see what's happening out there. Um, well, thank you so much, Chief. We really appreciate your time and your willingness to help spread the cure. Um, and then lastly, a big thank you again to Vanguard Safetyware for sponsoring the Fire Nuggets podcast. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Chief. Thank you, guys.